Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Good morning, afternoon, evening, delete where applicable. How are you doing today, listener? This is episode number nine of the Digital Bulletin podcast. I have two faces on a screen in front of me for today's recording. One of them belongs to Digital Bulletin content director, James Henderson. How are you, James? Good afternoon, Ben. I'm I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And the other is Romilly Broad, Digital Bulletin CEO, complete with a new goatee. (laughs) (laughs) It's a COVID goatee. It's a called co- I don't okay. care anymore because no one sees me. You do care though because you've you've shaped it. Well, I haven't let it turn into, you know, a, like a scarecrow or anything. I, you know, I'm trying to keep it reasonable for my family. <laughs> <laughs> Any um opinions on Mr. Broad's facial hair, James? Um I was always told by my mother if I had nothing nice to say, then say nothing at all. So <laughs> I'll, um, yeah, right. I'll, I'll take that advice, I suppose. Obviously, listener, this is all completely pointless chat to you because you cannot see Rom's, uh, Rom's <laughs> no. me, but it is, it is indeed very well cultivated. Um, <laughs> I would say permanent. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. Not, not, if my, not if my daughter's got anything to do with it anyway. She's, she's, in the, she's in the Henderson ranks of uh, anti-goatee. <laughs> James's full beard is its usual uh, strong self. Anyway, before you um, before you switch off, listener, let's just keep you keep you. Here. <laughs> uh, right today, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to chat all things tech for good, which is our shiny new toy here at Digital Bulletin. We're also going to explore our Norfolk County Council case study. And we're going to hear from Jessica Nordlander, who is Sweden's most innovative leader of 2019, and that's official. She's going to be talking about how tech can solve the complexities of remote working. So an exciting pod for you today, folks, and we're going to kick it off with some news. In the wake of the protests following the death of black American George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer, facial recognition technology has come under enormous scrutiny, especially the nature of how it's being used by law enforcement. In the past couple of weeks, tech companies have responded with IBM stopping all work around facial recognition and Amazon and Microsoft distancing themselves from the technology for now. Elsewhere in the past month, we've seen the Indian telecoms industry attract an astonishing amount of investment. This is a fascinating story as all of tech's big players aim for a slice of the pie. India's 1.4 billion people are becoming more connected very quickly and Facebook and Amazon are among those making bets in the country. In the world of driverless cars, Volkswagen completed a 2.6 billion investment in self-driving technology startup Argo, meaning they joined forces with Ford in running one of the most exciting companies in the automotive space. We've also seen Wheatpro appoint a new CEO, SoftBank sell off some of its assets to fill a COVID-shaped hole in its finances, and Google and Sonos lock legal horns over smart speakers. Now you can find a full roundup of the reporting on these stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. Yes, that's digitalbulletin.com. .com now, happy days. But now we are going to engage in some shameless self-congratulation because this has been a big week for Digital Bulletin and it's not just because we're now .com. 
We've launched our sister publication and platform, Tech for Good. Now, it's pretty self-explanatory, really, but Tech for Good is for stories of how new technologies are having a positive impact on the world around us, whether that be societal, environmental, economic, anything, really. Our first magazine is live now, exploring tech themes around topics like education, healthcare, and social good. Um, but, you know, let's... Rom, I'm going to come to you now as CEO of our esteemed company and, and get you really to sort of give us a bit of a backstory on what Tech for Good, how Tech for Good came to be. Yeah, well, I mean, we've obviously collectively spent the last couple of years traveling around the world when, well, when we were allowed to do that sort of thing, uh, meeting uh, lots of pretty impressive people, uh, leaders uh, in a technology context, bringing about large scale change and transformation in uh, organizations uh, of of note so multinational uh, organizations and that is really interesting and obviously we're not going to stop doing that but one of the things that kept coming up during that process was the fact that um where you might expect them to be saying you know look we're doing this to drive efficiency to uh, cut costs etc Often they would say, no, no, the primary motivator for here is to um, uh, reduce our impact on the environment, to make a better environment for our people to work in, to give them better uh, balanced lives between home and work. And, and so we thought, you know what, this is, um, this is a topic of its own right. This is, we're seeing lots of examples of technologies that are uh, impacting the world uh, in a positive way. And that's certainly the intent behind them. Uh, and that was the origin of, of the idea, really, behind uh, behind Tech for Good. And so here we are. James, is there a sense that these topics, very relevant, obviously, six months ago, but given the sort of events of 2020, that they're even more relevant right now? Yeah, certainly. I think Tech for Good is, is one of the sort of key themes at the moment within technology. And I think we've seen that by, you know, some arch rivals really if you like coming together within the likes of sort of google amazon apple uh microsoft to, to name a few sort of war working in tandem to, to to develop tech technologies for track and trace um to to allow other companies to sort of plug into their apis um we've we've seen you know other companies in other areas uh, pivot their operations so they can you know develop hand sanitizers and ppe i mean we even saw a, a brewery um changing changing up so they could uh produce hand sanitizer so i think this it's definitely made companies within the technology sphere and you know and throughout industry come together um to really work for for, for the wider good so you know we had no idea that this would happen obviously but it it's certainly more timely than ever what we're speaking about. Absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly a switch in emphasis. Ron, we've known for obviously for a while that technology's power and the power of technology companies has grown enormously. Is it fair to say that their responsibilities haven't quite sort of, you know, measured up against against that growth? And it's only really now that we're starting to get a sense that these companies are really sort of, um, you know, seeing that their power is it comes with a lot of responsibility yeah absolutely and i think this is going to be one of the big stories really of the next five years or so i mean if you just look at the covid situation what we've seen and we've got some uh reporting of this actually in in tech for good um we've seen a lot of companies a lot of organizations particularly 
say, healthcare organizations rapidly move um, to adopt new technologies. And those technologies largely are to be found in the cloud. And you, whether you're talking about Microsoft Teams or other video conferencing type applications that have been used in healthcare, for example, um, Microsoft has generously made that very easy for uh, hospitals all the, all around the world to quickly mobilize their people so that they could work from home where possible, et cetera. Um, and they've uh, uh, been able to, to make that process easy by waiving license fees and things. Mm-hmm. After after this is done, those hospitals will have become, you know, somewhat uh, hooked on those technologies. They're not going to – now they've got them. They don't want to uh, give them back, right? Um, but now there's a new cost burden. And the control of those platforms now is not with the hospitals. It's with Microsoft. And you can look at that in all sorts of ways. We've got um, technologies rapidly advancing where the ownership and control of the infrastructure of those technologies is ultimately owned by the companies with the resources to have those technologies, i.e., vast numbers of data centers all around the place and the servers to put applications on and all the rest of it. Um, Therefore, an increasingly small number of people own increasingly more of the the world's digital infrastructure. Um, There's costs and benefits to all of that. But with that kind of control comes a huge amount of responsibility. And I think over the next few years, we will start to see regulatory pressure on that, where particularly... uh, things like the EU, start to look at the fact that all of their major companies and institutions seem to be running on platforms that are owned by like two or three companies, and none of them are in the EU. And so what are they going to do about that? How how anti-competitive is that? How risky is that to national security and things? Um, this is going to be something that plays out. It, this goes into AI as well, of course. AI the- applications are running on the same um, platforms. Who exactly. No, I was going to say the intersect that intersection you're talking about between sort of government, the big big technology companies, and and us, the users of the technology. That's a theme that emerges in 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 one of the main sort of feature articles. In in fact, in the cover story for Tech for Good, isn't it? Right. Exactly. And so um, there's a really big question on the cover of Tech for Good, which is um, an essential the, the the central premise of that, and um, is. AI itself as an application is going to be the source of the greatest redistribution of power relatively in society um, ever, potentially. Who sets the rules? And that's a really big question. We don't know the answer, uh, but the people we spoke to, um, uh, George, who formerly was head of global strategy at Ipsos, uh, and Omar, who was the head of uh, engineering innovation at NASA until very recently, Um, both gave us opinions on that they say look right now no one's in control apart from the people that own the infrastructure and that's not very many people Um, but that doesn't mean we haven't got an opportunity to think properly about that Um, but we haven't got very long so it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting few years to be uh, to be witnessing all of this Mm. I think the goatee has grown just a little bit as well during that speech there, Rob. Um, James, just to move it, just to move it on to uh, one of the points Ron brought up there, and you know the, the concerning sort of um, theme that is emerging right now in the world, where a smaller and smaller sort of group of companies have more and more control over the technology that we all rely on, ultimately not just use but re- but rely on. Um, 
and that, that's going to be a major theme across Tech for Good as, as we go move forward with this new sort of publication and platform. Is, is that something that really kind of worries you? And do you, do you see a sort of positive outcome for that, really? Um, well, again, it sort of it, it talks to how much power these companies have. And I think that increasingly they seem to have more power and more influence than our actual governments, which is... It's pretty scary, and then you you know you consider the how the you know the major Chinese companies that you know want to want to have a piece of every five G network on the planet. How sort of tied in they are with with the leadership in Beijing as well. Um, it's almost like if if you want to have any sort of technology or use any sort of technology services whatsoever, then you have to use these companies because, as you said, there is almost a, a monopoly, if you like. Um, I, I is, it, is, it, is it incumbent on the on the the authorities, so the governments of the day, to really recognise how how big an issue this is and use their power of governance to to sort of control this? I think they have to, but at the same time, if you're Google or or Apple or, or somebody like that, um, and you put so much money into into an economy where it's the you know the american economy every year and you, you know all of those jobs that they they have in silicon valley you actually you hold as much power as the, as the government does to you because they could just pick it up and move it somewhere else you know they have the the cash reserves to do that so it's difficult i was speaking to somebody the other day that said you that that said, look, we almost need like a United Nations for this. So all countries need to come together and use their collective power uh, to lobby these technology companies to, you know, to act in in the public interest. And I think most of them do, but obviously, it, you know, it's a it's it feels like it could just be a runaway train at, at any point because they have so much power um, and they have so much data and they have so much influence. You it, you you feel almost powerless. And and we all, to some extent, use them. Yeah, here we are, sat on Google's virtual meeting tool, right. doing this conversation. <laughs> um, right, Rom. Let's you know this is tech for good. Let's let's try and put a good spin on it. There's still yeah. you know, a huge amount of opportunity here as well, though, isn't it? We're not we're not yeah. at the end of the road by any means, and and there is still an opportunity. And and as as I said at the start of this conversation, the, the big companies are now doing a lot more than they ever have done to um shoulder their fair share of responsibility whether that be whether that be around sort of environmental issues or social issues that have obviously been particularly relevant recently yeah well let's let's be absolutely clear this isn't i don't think this is a negative story actually it's it's kind of a um it's an issue that needs to be tackled and plenty of people are tackling it so um the other thing to remember is that we have this access now to this vast computational power that is going to be good for society um whether whatever algorithm it is you're deploying against whatever problem it is, um, we now have this opportunity to have better healthcare, better institutions, better access to democracy, better or anything you can think of really. IoT making uh, agriculture more profitable and, and productive. Those things are possible because those companies have invested in building the infrastructure to enable it. So you don't want to um, dismiss that. That's not a threat in of itself. That's a huge opportunity. On the other hand, you do need to have transparency of governance on that. Otherwise, as James is saying, how do we know that that's actually acting in the public interest rather than the interest of their shareholders? And so there's a reckoning to come where we try and resolve these problems. And I, personally, I'm confident that we will, because ultimately, if those companies don't act in the public interest, 
that's not necessarily particularly sustainable for them as a company in the end because that means people will step in and they'll probably nationalize it or something crazy so it, it will resolve and frankly the benefits far outweigh the costs just one last yeah. thing to add to that as well i think that it's been it's been proven um pretty much that companies that do act in a in an ethical manner and do act um in a way that is positive um outperform companies that don't in pretty much every metric including for example right retaining and attracting the best talent in industries where there are huge talent gaps. So, you know, there are huge reasons why companies should be doing this if they're not already. And it's not just a box ticking exercise. It actually equates to pounds and pence or dollars and cents on the bottom line as well. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And just uh, as, a, as a final point on this guys, I know you both speak to people who are leading technology change quotes in, in their companies and industries. Yeah, the, I know this topic comes up a lot about sort of sustainable tech and, and um, responsible tech. Do, do you feel that there is a genuine genuine desire from the individuals right at the heart of this to, to make sort of positive change in this area? Rom, I'll come to you. Um, yes, absolutely. And in fact, that desire, as expressed to us repeatedly over the last two years, is why we created Tech for Good in the first place, because it's not... Um, uh, necessarily, you know, the, the, the application of technology for profit. That's not really the driving force behind a lot of these things. Um, companies know that, as James has just said, unless they act uh, in a responsible way, they will not be a sustainable company ultimately. But also, these are human beings, just like you and I. Um, they want to do this because they know it's the right thing to do in, in the end. And so uh, because a company cannot survive if its own people fundamentally disagree with what it's doing off they go somewhere else to a company that is and so yeah absolutely uh, at the very top and i think that's one thing that we've seen over the last few years lagging perhaps is that um uh the very top leadership of a lot of big companies um uh hasn't necessarily prioritized um the ethical correctness of their technology investments um that's changing i think and you can feel that everywhere in the world whether it's in terms of environment or social unrest or indeed disease and our ability to handle it um i i think we'll see some rapid progress now um maybe i'm an optimist but i i think we will yeah well certainly um we hope so because uh, that will be that'll be good for our platform thinking very selfishly um Jay <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're a, a um, very responsible organisation as well. Very, very, very responsible. Apart from uh, facial hair, that's not a very big <laughs> All right. Oh. Oh. J James, <laughs> um, obviously, that we're sort of talk talking already about how the 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 sort of governance of technology is going to be mm -hmm. very important going forward. And one of one of the topics we cover, we're going to cover in Tech for Good, is is public sector and, and the kind of work that public sector organisations are doing. Do you want to talk a bit about your feature with the um, CIO of the City of Atlanta over in the, over in the states on Tech for Good? Because this is a really interesting story, isn't it? Obviously, a, a smaller scale, but certainly um, a really interesting example of public sector um, technology initiative. Oh, this, in my opinion, it's a, and obviously I am biased in that. A, I wrote it, and B, it is in Tech for Good. Uh, yeah, so we spoke to a, a, the city of Atlanta's CIO, a chap called Gary Brantley, who was a, a really fantastic interview. And it's um, 
really it's a tale of two viruses if you like one uh, a, a a computer virus a cyber attack um and, and one being being covid19 now gary brantley uh, took the position up at, at the at the tail end of 2018 when the, the city of, of Atlanta was still dealing with um, a cyber attack that it suffered. And it was actually the biggest cyber attack um, suffered by a, a public sector organization in, in the United States. Um, so he, he sort of speaks to us about um, how he went in and, and, and the work he had to do um, to, you know, to, to sort out the, the after effects of that. And it was very much... Um, it was very much about going back to basics. He spoke about how they had to get their basics right, how to, they had to get their IT fundamentals correct after this attack. And he 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 made the analogy with a, a sports star can't do anything really fancy uh, and really skillful unless they have their basics down, which I, which which I, which I thought was really nice. Um, and they sort of they've sort of come out of the worst of that, and it was sort of you know business as usual. Um, yeah, and then he spoke to us about what you know what the the city has faced um, through this sort of the, the pandemic, through COVID nineteen, um, and the, the city's response to it, and and actually what he says, if there is a you know a silver lining for those guys, it's that the lessons that they learned from the cyber attack in twenty eighteen, um, and the challenges that's has thrown up has, has allowed them to be you know far more equipped to, to deal with the, the challenges that this virus has thrown up too. Um, he he does also speak to us about you know some of his longer term plans about how he he's working with some of the big tech companies to sort of serve some of the the city's more underprivileged communities. But it very much that you know the meat of the story is very much you know a sort of tale of two viruses and how um, a really talented CIO has 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 been able to to sort of take both of them on with you know a really skilled team. So for you know from a writer's point of view, sometimes you write stuff that you know you enjoy but you might not think is you know massively interesting sometimes but i thought this this one certainly was you know i, I think i think anyone with even a passing interest in, in technology will will really enjoy this one yeah it's, it's got what you call uh what we call a hook isn't it a real hook certainly, yeah. and yeah i definitely recommend um listeners to head over to techforgood.digitalbulletin.com right now to go and read the article um rom do you want to sort of give us a flavor of, of what else um readers can can look at on um, on the platform and and sort of a, maybe a flavor of what's what's to come as well because i know you've had a lot of influence certainly on the the type of stories that we've told in this first edition yeah so uh, we're gonna have a daily diet of uh news type content uh, as ever um similar to um, digital bulletin but the um the the main topics of interest for tech for good are um we're looking at education we're looking at healthcare um we're looking at social good um and into which you could find uh, many topics but we're talking about how do you uh, improve um you know the the nature of society in terms of how it can access services and facilities and um how can uh, our, our public discourse improve things like that um we're also looking at public sector so that is where we're going to consider uh, smart cities. We're going to look at um, connectivity and and how that impacts um, how you might be able to better serve rural areas in different parts of the world and so on. Um, so there's there's a quite a, a breadth of uh, things that we're looking at. What we are lucky in in being able to do is to be able to reach out and and talk about these topics to some of the most influential leaders in their field across this 
across this area. So um, obviously you can find that in our first issue, um, which you can go and read now, but expect much more of the same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it feels it feels like uh, obviously it's a very exciting time for our our company and it's also a very exciting time generally in 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 the world of technology i think so there is and we, we do want to focus on that on that kind of opportunity rather than n- not just the the negative kind of side of the debate as well now it's it's time for us to to move away from the global issues facing humanity right now and narrow our focus on our norfolk county council case study after this Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. On every pod, we take the opportunity to discuss one of our in-depth Digital Bulletin case studies. And this month, we're going to revisit our work with Norfolk County Council, also a topic very close to the tech for good angle as well. As a Norfolk-based company, this was obviously a subject matter very close to our hearts. Now, Kurt Frary was our interviewee, and he's the council's CTO and has dedicated pretty much his whole career to technology and Norfolk. Before we dive deeper into this case study, here is Frary talking about some of the challenges faced when trying to drive connectivity and innovation in a highly rural area. Some of the challenges of living and working in a rural, large rural county are it's rural. You haven't got connectivity, you haven't got that foundation there to maybe access the internet, use, um, use digital services and, and we're, we're cognizant of that. We know that actually if we're to help people in the adult social care arena, maybe help people live and stay in their homes longer. Uh, live independently longer. We need to use digital to enable that and maybe so we can service more more citizens. Also businesses in the region, if they haven't got connectivity where they want to start the business, where they want to operate, then they can't operate and they'll go somewhere else. So we're keen as a, as a local authority to make sure we give businesses what they need, which is the, founda- the foundation to digital services, which is connectivity. And we're also keen to make sure that we look at our own public services that we provide so we can service more people through digital, which means that our foundation has to be connectivity again. So that means that they're the core of our strategy. But that's the start of it. We'll get the connectivity right. We'll, we'll say to people, come to Norfolk, you know, you've got the things you need but then we need to innovate on top of that, both in the public and the private sector. James, we've heard about the challenges there from Kurt. Do you want to give us an overview of the, some of the interesting things that Norfolk are, are doing right now with technology? Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of big initiatives that they've got, but they all sort of feed into this one main goal that, that Kurt um, kept speaking about, which was to make uh, Norfolk the, the best connected rural county in the UK. Um, I, yeah, I think central to that is the, uh, this uh, LoRaWAN network, which which they've developed, which is a low power wide area network, um, into which they've sort of built hundreds of these um, IoT gateways. Um, and what that's allowed them to do is is build uh, sort of huge tranches of data, which are are being used by agricultural firms. It's been used by by Norfolk County Council itself, sort of track you know traffic levels, air quality. Um, and it's free for for private firms to use as well, um, and it's it's the first example of this. Certainly, you know, free to use um, in the UK, um, and 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 there's a lot. I think it's 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 developed a lot of interest from other um, public sector companies in the UK. They said they've had um, people from the northeast, from from Leeds, from Leicester, all coming to look at what that the team is doing. Um, so I think he see you know he certainly likes 
likes to see himself as a sort of trailblazer in this aspect. And, you know, there's a lot to admire about what's going on at Norfolk. You know, it might not be um, the, the first location when you think of when you think of, you know, public sector innovation. But, you know, there's certainly some exciting things going on there. Yeah, that's the point I wanted to bring up with you, Rom, as well. Norfolk is clearly putting a lot of effort into becoming a connected county. And, and, and were you impressed by how they appear to be leading in, in so many areas compared to their peers here? Yeah, absolutely. The um, Just for a bit of context, I suppose, for anyone outside of the UK, Norfolk is a uh, on the far eastern reaches of the United Kingdom and is, um, for in, in, in UK terms, it's quite a large uh, empty county, right? There's a lot of agriculture. And so connecting it isn't necessarily uh, the easiest thing to do. And so they've had to be very bold in terms of how they're approaching this. And the Laurel Wan um, work that they've done is trailblazing on UK terms. I think there's quite a lot of it going on in Europe as well. Um, but but fundamentally, it's um, incredibly, um, potentially very useful technology. And, and this this is wide area networks that you, they very small bandwidth, right? So you can't send videos and things over them. But what you can do is take, put a little transmitter in almost any device and connect it um, to a network in, in an IoT sense. And so it could be a, it could be a vending machine or a water meter or a smoke alarm in a barn or it could be anything. Um, and what they are doing as a local authority is building the the bedrock, the foundations upon which loads of innovation can occur. And in fact, we've we've ourselves shared offices with people that are actually leveraging that technology um, to, I believe, in their case, measure the temperature of seats in large office buildings in order to be able to use those office buildings more efficiently right because they can have a real-time measure of who's occupying which parts of the building and therefore you can turn off heating in some sections for example and become more sustainable as a as a building all sorts of applications and yes it is interesting um that uh, uh norfolk itself you know our local authority is really blazing that trail and as often we find um uh, innovation happens when you're up against the wall a little bit and that I would say, uh, coupled with Kurt's dynamism, is maybe what has led. The, the benefits uh, are obviously so uh, easy to see. The return on investment is so easy to see that all it took is someone of Kurt's character to um, to do, you know, to try it out and to to find that boldness. And unfortunately, he's got a team around him who are who are able to um, uh, to build on that with him. Yeah, definitely. Now, part of Norfolk's efforts to become a truly digital county has involved the gathering, as James said earlier, of as much data as possible from all of these various projects that we've spoken about just there. And as Ferrari explains here, he wants to ultimately create an open data program to benefit every citizen and business in the area. One of the things that we're doing is collecting a lot of data as part of these projects. So if you have a sensor, collects a piece of data, what's the temperature somewhere or, or how, what's the rainfall like? So we're getting a lot of data. What's really interesting is once we get that data, you can put it together and make better sense of it and, and make better decisions. However, I've got an ambition to use as much of that data and publish it as a, as a public record so, so businesses can use it and private individuals. So if, for instance, if we're monitoring air quality across Norfolk or we're monitoring rainfall, other services can use it, but other businesses, which means um, as a public record that gives something back 
but also allows us to then look across the county and become a real digital county, a smart county. And being a smart county, we've got a data set we can then build on. And the more data you put in, the more better information you'll get back. You can make really smart decisions if, you, if you've got the information you need to hand. James, this approach to data, which Kurt spoke about there, it sounds really interesting, doesn't it? Certainly an example of, of real public service. You get the sense that Kurt is really driven by, by public service, isn't he? Yeah, and what what he what kept coming across was that, you know, this this initiative isn't for a certain section of, of of people or a certain section of industry. His real drive is to use technology to improve. He said, you know, the life of every citizen and every business within Norfolk. Um, so that that I think that's where where that idea is, you know, has come from. That every technology initiative that they do should help as many people or as many businesses as it possibly can. It, you know, it can't be too narrow. It, it, you know, it has to be able to to scale, if you like. Yeah. Ron, we know the words public sector and innovation don't necessarily go hand in hand all of the time, do they? Um, and especially when it comes to to councils, and you tend to think of sort of slow moving beasts. But in a way, this this story kind of proves, especially with with how Norfolk, as you said, trailblazing in certain areas, it disproves that theory, doesn't it? And and maybe that's sort of a another example of how technology really really is coming to the fore, not just in private companies, but also in in public organisations as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think they they found um, a good blend of uh, um, boldness versus um, you know astute planning um, to be able to drive an innovation agenda within a local authority that isn't normally easy to do. And that, let's be honest, in a public sector context, um, it, it is difficult to innovate, and there's there's reasons that are. Uh, are uh, that are very good for that you know these are typically institutions that are stocked with lots of people who've been doing the same thing for a lot of time it's difficult from a culture and people and skills perspective to maneuver those things but also um, local authorities normally don't have any money and inventing stuff normally costs lots of money it doesn't make any money um, and innovation is when something um, that has already been invented changes the world for the better somehow and that's the difference between those two things it's not encumbered encumbered upon public authorities to invent anything but it is incumbent upon them to find proven solutions that they can be very sure will will have a positive impact and that, that's what kurt's very good at laura one isn't a new concept but as an authority he's been able to um, bring together the resource and the intent to to actually invest in it and deploy it um on with a very good sense that that return on investment will be there and it's that sort of activity that you would like to think will encourage others more other local authorities to to compartmentalize bits of their budgets and a few of their resources to to achieve the same sorts of things and in that sense maybe what kurt's doing is even more important um than the actual technology itself is to create a culture of innovation from Within, within the necessary confines of a public sector, which is often obviously focused on the must-dos and not the nice-to-haves, if you see what I mean, um, yeah. because they've obviously got very limited budgets most of the time. Yeah, I found this story really interesting, actually. And, and James, just, just to, to wrap up on this, was there anything else that you took away from it? Because it, it was different to the kind of stories that we, we usually cover, not just in the sense that it was just down the road from us, but also in the sense that it was of a, a, a public-facing organisation and also you used to work there as well. I'll just throw that in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, 
so yeah, I got all the glamorous jobs. I got to go down the road to my former employer. Um, <laughs> but I think certainly it's it's changed from 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 when I was there, which was in in 2013. And having someone like her, you know, heading up the the technology side of the business really helps. But actually, what came across most to me, and I think that you know this is the same whether you're a public sector, you know, big comp, you know, a big public sector um organization like norfolk county council or or actually if you're in the private sector as well to enact that change kurt clearly has the the support of the top people at norfolk county council and he spoke about his really cl close relationship with the chief executive and the chief executive has, has said to him you know if you have ideas that are not particularly expensive to go and and trial just go and do them you don't even have to tell me you know go and do it so he he he's been liberated him and his team to you know think quite creatively and go out there and, and do them and then go back when he's found found the results and i i think that's if if you want you know if you want to enact technology transformations or, or technology initiatives which are really successful you need the support of the, the top people whether that's the chief executive of a council or a ceo or a, you know a, a a coo so that that was the thing that came across to me how important it is to to have support right at the top level to you know to enable you and your team to go out and 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 be smart about what you're doing and be really creative from from a technology point of view yeah and and kurt was so enthusiastic wasn't he you can certainly see why um people would be convinced by any arguments that he made to to do any technology initiatives because he's certainly um very passionate very knowledgeable and and really yes you could tell as well that he had a lot of respect from from the people he works with and yeah yeah it's definitely um, a really interesting story and one that's worth going to learn more about over on digitalbulletin.com where you can read the full case study and watch some videos as well we'll be back after another ever so brief interlude power up your day with the bulletin brief the latest news insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox Next up, we're going to hear from Jessica Nordlander. Now, Jess is currently COO of community exchange platform Thought Exchange over in Canada. Last year, she was named Sweden's most innovative leader and has previously worked for Google while also helping different tech startups form and flourish. We chatted to Jess about the remote working revolution and whether the technology is actually in place to enable long-term and effective remote working. Her views are certainly well worth listening to, especially on this first question on how companies will balance office and remote working in the future. I think it's important to remember that like every individual has their own circumstances, right? I think depending on, uh, I think it's super important to, to, if you want to create a diverse workforce, it's super important to consider things like, you know, is it possible for every employee to have a dedicated workspace at home? Is it possible to have like out of home childcare, like, you know, those types of things. And if you truly want to build a, a, a diverse workforce, you need to be able to give people the opportunity to make their own choices that are fit for their situation. So I think when you say, you know, we will never go back to office spaces, I think it's pretty easy to discriminate the people that maybe for some reason doesn't have the opportunity to work from home. So I, I, to me, it's still super, super important that, that you're able to work with your company in a way where, where people have choice. And of course, you know, for a smaller company, it's, it's an easy, easier logistical challenge. For, for really big companies, it's going to be 
harder to not have clear cut rules about, you know, what, what works for people and what, or what works for the employees and what doesn't work. But I still think that, that these like very blunt statements around like either everyone needs to be back in the office or everyone is going to be remote, uh, to me seems like a bit, um, uh, yeah, a bit scary in terms of at the same time driving driving diversity in your workforce. Yeah, definitely. Now let's move on to the the kind of tools and software that have sort of enabled this this transition to remote working. We've seen companies like Zoom and other companies who've who've really benefited from this and their software and, and their their capabilities have really come to the fore. Do you think in the market today there are enough tools of that ilk and of, of, of different varieties to make sort of remote working easy for companies to do? Yeah, good question. So I think there are tools, there are a lot of tools that um, make it possible to, to digitize what you used to do in the office. So, you know, you used to help, you used to hold, um, you know, in-person meetings with a number of people and, and now you want to do the same meeting in the same way, uh, you know, virtually. There, there are tools that facilitates those things or you, or you used to have, you know, project management software that you worked with when you were in the office and there's tools to make those things easier um, as you go um, uh, virtual. What I don't think there's enough of is, you know, as uh, tools that makes, if you, if you see that as digitizing, just doing the same thing, but in kind of a virtual format, there isn't enough, I think, tools that makes it po- possible to digitalize. So what I mean with that is to take full advantage of the opportunities that exist now when you're remote or, you know, enough tools that actually elevates the experience beyond what it was when you were meeting face to face. So meetings weren't very good in the first place, right? Like you have a meeting with 12 people in a meeting room. You know, you have all these risks of, of unconscious bias, loudest voice, silent majority, like who speaks in these meetings, whose voice gets heard, what ideas get brought forward, like those types of things, right? And those problems will just be magnified as you go to a virtual environment because people will zoom out, they will start doing something else if they aren't engaged, like those risks increases. So I guess what I think is like there weren't enough tools to make meetings good in the first place and the problems have only gotten bigger. Does that yeah. make sense? No, it does. I, I guess also the sort of what you're trying to say is around the more complex, whether it's a meeting or whether you're talking about a project or a product and you need input from different people, the, the kind of um, like Zoom is great for just a, you know, a normal like morning catch up or whatever, but a mm-hmm. meeting where there's a lot more, a lot more sort of detail to talk about and maybe um, screens to be shared and all that kind of thing. It might, the tools necessarily aren't, um, as, as pervasive as, as those sort of standard ones. Yeah, and if I think for leaders, for example, like a big part of, of what leadership is to drive decision-making, right? And, and also make sure that, you know, you kind of somehow tap into that collective intelligence of, of all the people that you have in your organization. And I think it was, it was difficult in the first place to keep people engaged, but, you know, with, with people kind of physically disconnected from offices, you know, mo- many leaders that I talk to have found that that's even more difficult now. And I think that's when you when you start to think about that difference between like complicated and complex. Right. I think we can still solve complicated problems pretty well, like who's going to do what and when. And, you know, how do we solve this specific problem and, and throw some experts on it? I think we're, you know, in the virtual environment, we can still solve those things pretty well with the tools that we have. But when it comes to complex issues like cultural transformation or build, trust building or decision making and those types of things, like those are the things that were, you know, complex problems in the first place. And they've just gotten even more complex now. 
on, on the basis of what you just said, that an opportunity for software companies to come up with the, the, the solution that is going to sort of resolve these problems in remote working. There, there is a lot of opportunity there now, isn't it, for the, for the big minds of Silicon Valley and the like? Yeah, and I guess that, you know, for us, like we, we feel that we're, we're partway there, right, at Thought Exchange. We saw a huge value for this product before, but in this virtual environment, it's just our usage has just exploded. I think we're up, you know, 600% in our usage over last year since, since, uh, since COVID hit. Yeah, do you want to talk a bit more about that and, and talk more about sort of exactly what, what you guys offer and why you think you've had that surge? Yeah, so um, more or less, like it's, it's a pretty simple thought. So um, we, the tool lets a leader ask an open-ended question. So the question, for example, that we see a lot of leaders asking, you know, when COVID first hit is like, you know, uh, what do you need from, from the company right now? Like what are, what you can ask that to 10,000 employees. What, what, what do you, what are your needs looking like right now? And what are the things we should be talking about? And then, you know, every participant, let's say you're an employee of the company that where a leader asks this question, you go in and you answer in your own words, you answer this question. Well, right now I feel that I need, you know, some flexibility around um, work because I have small kids at home that I need to take care of and they can't go to school. And then once you've input your own thoughts, you go on to a step where you're able to interact with the thoughts of others. So in a completely transparent way, uh, what everyone else has been written is served to you uh, and in a way that you get introduced to both things that you might agree with and things that you might disagree with. And you rate these thoughts of others. And then the, what the platform does is that, you know, when all these people go through this crowdsourcing exercise, the things that the groups thinks is most important will come to the top and gets rated highest. So it more or less lets everyone contribute in their own words, rather than if you compare to a survey, you know, the leader that is creating the survey doesn't need to come up only with the question, but they only need to come up, also need to come up with the answers. Yeah. Like out of these five things, what are the things that you need <laughs> most right now? And I think very few people have felt like super engaged and listened to when they respond to a survey where someone else just also already came up with the answers for me, right? So it allows everyone to participate with their own ideas, which means that you can tap into collective intellect and then it allows you to engage with other people's ideas and you then go through that crowdsource exercise with the group deciding what's actually the most important things we should be talking about right now. The increase of, of you know, the COVID, I think it's just really highlighted to leaders like how important it is to have these types of conversations and how important it is for employees and communities to be able to, to um, provide help provide solutions to the problems. I think if you're, I think that um, as a leader, if, if an individual walks into your office right now during this crisis, you're going to start by asking them how they're doing, right? How, how yeah. are you? And then you would probably go to as a leader, what do you need? Like, how can I help you? And then only after dealing with those issues for this person, you can move on to things like, you know, how does our business need to adapt and, and how could this person contribute to those things, right? And I think that sometimes leaders right now come across as a bit tone deaf if they go directly to like, how can we as a company innovate and transform and, and, you know, survive during this time, if you haven't taken the time in your organization to ask the questions that are, are the most fundamentally for people. Yeah. It's really, a, it's really a people, people focus, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, just on a sort of wider topic, Jess, I'm interested to know what, what are the main challenges you felt you have faced as a leader of a business during this pandemic? What, what have sort of been the most pressing challenges for you personally? I think that humans uh, have a way of reacting in these situations that that doesn't that means that sometimes we lose focus on certain things in, in for others, right? So, for example, it's easy to to when given 
um, when you need to do maybe both some co cost cutting measures, but you also need to redefine yourself to actually survive for the future, it's really, it's really easy to go into some kind of like efficiency bias situation where you only think about like cutting back when maybe what you should be doing is like ideating around like how, I'm, how are we going to get out of this situation, right? And I think that as, as humans and, you know, this, you can see this in research too, we, we have this efficiency bias, that means that where we go first is to try to like, you know, uh, limit the risk and, and anything new or innovative is, is seen as like a, a threat to what we're doing. So I, I think that's a huge challenge right now for companies to just like both try to, of course, do what they need to be doing to protect their business in the short term. But then, you know, how about uh, the things that we need to invest in today to make sure we're successful in the long term? And how do you do that kind of balancing act and trade off between today and tomorrow? I think that's a, that's a huge um, a huge challenge. The other thing I think is like, I'm going to come back to the people thing, right? Like we need to remember that this is a huge crisis for every single individual, regardless of how you're affected. Like even if you, you know, aren't directly affected and you're lucky enough to still have your job, I think that this neurological impact of the stress that the uncertain, uncertainty like creates for us is just also really draining for most people. And how do you again balance, you know, as a, as a leader, your, the, the willingness and kind of the um, engagement from the employees to save the company with making sure that people don't get burned out by the enormous amount of stress that people are facing right now. So that's again, like a really important kind of dynamic balancing between, you know, engaging people and, and making sure they have enough time to, to recover and rest and, and spend time with their families. Right, folks, that's enough from us today. Now, allow me to point you in the direction of some other bits. So as we discussed earlier, the very first edition of Tech for Good is now live. Just head over to techforgood.digitalbulletin.com. Issue 17 of Digital Bulletin is also available to read right now. And if you want more podcasts to help you shut off from the real world, a new episode of Fragmented Reality was released last week with Innovation Group's CTO, Mike Hinton. Now, guys, thanks for joining me today. James, are you now off to use some tech for good, I hope? Yeah? Yeah? Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, I suppose I am in a, good. In a sense. Good, good, good. Good's our new word. Rom, goodbye. Thanks for joining us and me. Good. Yes, good. absolutely. Good. And Everything's good. And to you, listener. Until next time, good, 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 goodbye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to our range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.